Hello everyone, Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus. As a member, you'll get all the normal episodes, of course. You'll get behind-the-scenes access. You'll get a weekly bonus podcast. You'll get a fortnightly newsletter, access to members-only chat room, the ability to vote on future episodes, and of course, early access to any live shows we do. And it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to Bazaar Plus. Dot com. That's Bizarre Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bizarre. I'm going to kick back and enjoy this. Some of these stories, you would say, that cannot be true. The hunt for the weirdest. It's a real rollercoaster ride, this one, isn't it? <laughs> it makes Game of Thrones look like a sitcom. <laughs> Strangers. Hang on. He's on another level. What are you doing? <laughs> a lot of our stories that start with someone <laughs> fleeing moneylenders. Most unbelievable. This is a car crash. <laughs> stories to ever occur. I'll stop this right now. <laughs> it's just carnage. That is the densest bit of mayhem. So many <laughs> subplots in this story. In the world of sport. I think we're learning that embarrassment is not something. Sports bizarre. A naked fan ran onto the field and slid into second base. <laughs> no, I don't drink water. I cannot stand drinking water. I am the president of everybody. I am the president of the whole FIFA. <laughs> Opened his mouth and a sparrow flew out. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. It's really simple. Get there early, get the good back. It's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome back to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy, and of course, Titus O'Reilly. Let's get straight into it. Where'd you leave us? We were in uh, Nevada. We are in Nevada. Tex Rickard, he's becoming a boxing promoter. He's just promoted one of the biggest fights in the world. Battling Nelson versus Joe Gans. It was yeah. lightweight, heavyweight Went title. Went 44 rounds. Just a, in, <laughs> in 37 degree heat. Yeah, no worries. We ran into a bunch of characters. He's friends with Wyatt Earp. Yeah. The Chills and Fever Kid. That's right. That's my right. favourite nickname of well, all time. Like the Hobo Kid. The Hobo Kid. There's a lot of good. kids, you know. Stillwater Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> feel like he should be playing banjo for a bluegrass There is a lot of that, yeah. yeah. There's a bit of crossover. So in 1910, the heavyweight title division's a bit of a mess, okay. basically. You'd have all, all these different people. You had a guy called James J. Jeffries. He was a white heavyweight champion of the world. And he had retired undefeated. Yep. With him gone in the vacuum of that, a guy called Jack Johnson came along. Now, Jack Johnson the first is black superstar, superstar or, an iconic boxing, boxer, yeah. right? He's come along, but in America, no one would fight him. For why? Because he was coloured, as they would say, yeah, in the day. Okay. Because he was African-American, they wouldn't cross the colour line. Yeah. They were also terrified of him because he was huge. He'd beaten every yeah, black boxer. Was that. And yeah. so he was really good. And so he, he was kept saying to Jeffries, come out of a time and fight me because there was this sense that you hadn't, hadn't Jeffries had never lost and you yeah. hadn't fought the best. Finally, Johnson, though, a Canadian called Tommy Burns has become the world champion and Johnson is desperate to fight him and he actually chases Tommy Burns around the world. So wherever Tommy <laughs> Burns goes to fight, he turns up. even if he's not fighting Johnson, Johnson turns up and taunts him in the press mercilessly. Wow. Finally, he agrees to fight him, and it's at Sydney Stadium in Australia in 1908, December 26, 1908, Boxing Day. A famous moment. And this is a famous, which we'll cover another time, but this is a famous fight, and it really is the white man versus the black man, superiority of race, there's police there, everything. Yeah, Yeah, everything. And it's happening outside of America because no one in America will hold it. 
And it was like a, some kind of record crowd too. Huge something. crowd. I think it's like, you know, it's in the hundreds of thousands. There's police yeah. everywhere. Mm. It got stopped in, I think, like the 20 uh, – because Johnson just absolutely destroys him. It gets yes. stopped in like the 23rd round or something like that with the police stepping in. Oh, it's all over early. All, yeah. <laughs> so suddenly Johnson is the world heavyweight champion and does not go over well in America. Yeah. That you have a black heavyweight champion of the world. And the search immediately begins for a phrase that many people have heard, which is for the next, the great white hope. Yes. Who is the white man that's going to step up and reclaim, return the title to the white race is what the media say. And yeah, Jack actually. London, who wrote Call of the Wild yes. and has met Rickard up in Alaska, he loves boxing. He loves boxing so much, Jack London, yeah. that he writes about boxing all the time. He boxed daily. He carried boxing gloves wherever he travelled. Yes, Whenever there were no male contenders for him to box against for he did an hour long exercising. I thought he was gonna say day. boxes a bear or something. No, he yeah, sparred with his wife, Charmaine. <laughs> he used to give her a real workout. He used to work the body. <laughs> booga da booga da. <laughs> so he decides that he is furious Johnson's the world champion. Jack London coins the phrase, yep. great white hope. Who is okay. the great white hope that's going to basically return the honour to the white race? Wow. Yeah, so it's fully so like. an idol or something. It's for totally. Boxes. He writes at the time for the New York Herald, he writes, we need Jeffries to come out of retirement and wipe the golden smile from Johnson's face. Wow. So he's, there's racial overtones to this whole thing. Oh, it's all there? the way through. And Rickard's the one guy that, Seems to not care about it, but it does. He's in the middle of it all the yeah. time, and it does affect him, right? There's heaps of great photos of him with Jack Johnson and various other black athletes, and he's hanging out with them and is close to them, and yeah. he's one of the few that doesn't sure. seem to care at all. Where others are really think so. This stokes the hype for the idea of Jeffries to come out of retirement and reclaim the world championship belt for the white man is just all over the place now. In early August of 1909, Jeffries and Johnson agree that they will fight because they think we can get an enormous purse. They have no philosophical or real problems with each other. It's a pure money-making exercise. It's a pure money-making exercise. I mean, Jeffries thinks he is superior he does. being a white man. But and does no, Johnson harbour, he doesn't hate the white man. Well, he, he, just, he's, he experienced all the racism. He's imagine. sick of the usual. We'll do an episode on Jack Johnson. I mean, it would be because he ends up marrying a white woman and he goes to jail for dating white women. Yeah. So it's that hard a time. I prefer that we just went for jail for not going to Vietnam. I just thought that was, <laughs> we've come so far when it comes to black athletes. Exactly. But they see that suddenly this hype means we can make a lot of money. And so sure. they just need the right promoter. So they think, how are we going to get mm, someone who I'm we can I'm stroking my chin right yeah, now. Yeah. Rickard doesn't have any money. They announce we're going to get people to bid How's he lost his money? Fight. He's just promoted one of the biggest. He, he keeps losing it all the time. An iron he, has money. he has money. He doesn't have enough at the Good time to put, on this, his dad. to put on this fight, right? So Jeffries and Johnson say promoters can bid for this fight. And so at the time, Rickard goes and meets a friend of his who's a Minnesota mine owner and investor called Thomas Cole about a business, a mine business that Rickard's helping oversee for him. Right. This guy's rich as anything. And Cole and him start chatting about the Jeffries Johnson fight. Yeah. And Cole says, are you going to bid? And he says, I'm not in the financial position to bid. And Cole says, go after that fight, Tex. If the, it's only money you need, well, you can count on me as much as you want. Outbid every promoter by 20 grand if necessary, but get the match. Oh, so well. suddenly, Rickard, all the Eastern New York promoters, all the 
San Francisco promoters, yeah. which was the big town at the time, bigger than LA. Yes. They're all thinking they'll get it. And suddenly Tex walks Here in and they are like, Thanks. Rickard is interesting. He goes and finds Johnson where Johnson's staying and he walks up to his house. Yeah. Johnson's not there, but his girlfriend, Belle Schreiber, she's there. She says, I'll chat to you. So she chats and, and Rickard says, what would you like to get out of this deal if it gets done? And she says, a seal skin coat. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. Rickard says, I'll buy you the best seal skin coat I can find if you get Jack to In fact, sign. I'll hike all the way to Alaska. <laughs> I've been to Alaska. I'll, I'll build a boat. <laughs> I'll go and get it myself. It <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. So the bidding all starts on who's going to get it. Now, before the bidding's finished, Rickard manages to go and see Johnson and he starts to chat to Johnson and yep. they get along. But he figures out that what Johnson's really wanting is someone who's going to make this a fair fight because there's this idea that a black man versus a white man, there's a lot of vested interests who would like to make sure the white man yeah, wins. For there's powerful forces at powerful play. Powerful forces at play. And he gets the sense that Rickard is the only straight shooter in the bunch. So right? it's a trust here. It's a trust thing. On top of that, Rickard decides to offer the biggest purse ever for a boxing match. $101,000 to the boxers. 75% will go to the winner, 25% to the loser. This is a massive sure. amount of money. You know, this is, it blows all the other promoters out of the water. Some of them bet around the same yeah. much, but it is just the fact that he seems like He's a so he shooter. gets the fight. Suddenly Rickard has the fight. He wants to host it in San Francisco, but the governor says, no, we don't want this here. So Rickard moves it to Reno, Nevada. Once Back again, on home turf. has to build a stadium, build a stadium and everything, right? Now, the biggest wrangling of the fight, though, is who's going to be the referee. The two can't agree. They don't want this guy, they don't uh, want that guy. There's all bad blood everywhere. So finally, it's agreed that Rickard will take on the referee. <laughs> I thought you were going to say wide up for a minute. No, Rickard is suddenly refereeing well, why as well. Not? Yeah, why not? He's the one. Promoter and referee. Yeah. Imagine Don King. <laughs> The lead up to this is huge because it's suddenly, I mean, if the the Gans-Nelson fight was big in boxing circles and yes. as entertainment, this is front page everywhere, right. battle of the races. This, and they this is not even on the sports section. This is in. This, this they're is literally it. writing, this will prove who's the superior race. Good Lord. Like they're literally writing. I'll read oh, some of the things. So Rickard said that he received 3,000 requests for press seats, right? This is how <laughs> interesting people are. The New York Times wrote, this is the New York Times, yes. isn't some, if the black man wins, thousands and thousands of his ignorant brothers will misinterpret his victory as justifying claims to much more than mere physical equality with their white neighbours. Okay. Well, they can get off their high horse. <laughs> a bit over the New York Times. I also think it's funny, like, now you look back and, like, there was a doubt that the black guy might beat the white guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like if it should happen. Now Jeffries actually says to the press. Now remember, he's retired and never been beaten. Sure. How long has he's he been come retired? out of retired? Oh, like quite a few years, like four or five years. Yeah. Now he says, "I'm going into this fight for the sole purpose of proving that a white man is better than a Negro." That's what he actually says. Yeah. Right, that's his direct quote. He's not. He's not exactly like. But he's playing to the crowd, right? Because we know he just wants the money. He does, but I think he also does believe that. Believes right, in white supremacy. Now the fight finally comes around, and in the ring, Tex says to them both, "Now, fellas, I didn't want to referee this fight, but seeing as you can't agree on anyone else, I guess it will have to be me." Now I don't know much about this refereeing job, except all I want you to do is give the crowd what they paid for, break clean, and come out fighting at the bell. Sounds fair enough. 
the fight starts and straight away Johnson just, just starts destroying Jeffries. Jeffries is no one. By the 15th round, Jeffries has been knocked down twice for the first time in his career. And finally, they throw in the towel for Jeffries. And Johnson has won easily with wow. just no things. Jeffries in the paper afterwards is humbled and is actually classy. He says, I could never have whipped Johnson at my best. I couldn't have hit him. No, I couldn't have reached him in a thousand years. Hey. So even he comes in. It earns Johnson $65,000, which is more than $2 million in today's terms, and it silenced the critics of whether he's actually a good boxer or not. What about his wife? Racism. His wife gets Got the, the seal seal skin coat. <laughs> Rickard gets her seal skin coat. Rickard, just under 16,000 people attended and the gate brought in $270,000. So this is a record for both attendance and a gate. The aftermath meant he made $120,000 on the fight, which is a, a lot of money. That's like about $5, 6000000 million yeah, in today's money. Brilliant. The outcome of the fight, though, triggered race riots that evening. It was the 4th of July across the country. Race riots erupted in New York, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Atlanta, St. Louis, and Houston. Okay. In all, the riots occurred in more than 25 states and 50 cities. At least 20 people were killed in the riots and 100 more were injured. The wow. controversy of Jack Johnson beating a white champion yeah. was Congress moved to ban the distribution of prize fight films across state lines in 1912, they didn't want anyone so to. Could, they didn't it. want the film of a black man beating a white man to be easily S- available. Sore losers, <laughs> just slightly just sore losers. That ban wasn't lifted until 1940. So, so um, Rickard, in the middle of all this, with it all over, he's made a lot of money, but the race rights, the media, the politics, all of it, and Rickard is not a racist man and gets along with Jack Johnson very well. Yes. He's disgusted by it and exhausted by it. Yes. He decides to sell all his copper mining industries in Nevada. He sells it to the Guggenheims who become quite famous as a financiers and mining company and family. And he sells it for $40,000. He goes to Texas to try and buy a cattle ranch. But Texas is all bought up by this point. So it's no longer the Wild West. He decides to get out of boxing, go back to the cattle business. Yes. So he can't find enough land to raise enough cattle for him yep. to think it's worth it. So he travels to Paraguay. Which is the obvious thing <laughs> to do. I mean, that well-beaten trail <laughs> to Paraguay, clear answer to all his what, problems. For any problem. What could go wrong? He arrives in Paraguay. Now, you've got to remember, Paraguay, Bolivia, Argentina, all these areas, they're not well-defined at this point in sure. time. It's, it is the Wild West. He manages to convince the Paraguayan government to give him control of 270,000 acres of land for a cattle business. Mm -hmm. And he sets it up. He's traveling to New York, London, and South America, back and forth. He's got a bunch of people in London to invest lots of money into this idea to basically create the biggest cattle business in the world and export cattle all around the world. They end up with 5 million acres of South American land. Incredible. And the Farquhar Syndicate of London, who was very rich group over there mm-hmm. they're backing him so he's got money he's got 50,000 head of cattle for, on his main ranch yep. but they've got hundreds of thousands of cattle and all this stuff then they're moving back and forth by 913 it's 
becoming mired though in political controversy because the land Rickard and his associates have bought is the subject of a bitter dispute over the boundary lines or the borders between Bolivia, Paraguay, Argentina and Brazil. Okay, that's a, not a stink you want to get involved in, is it? So literally soldiers are showing up on his land. On his land, yeah. And the crisis reached a boiling point when soldiers from Bolivia are sent there to try and take it back and two of Rickard's men are killed in the land battle. So suddenly he's in the middle of a war. Yeah. Rickard is literally on the ground helping his men guard the ranch against soldiers. Newspapers are reporting about that, that Rickard has managed to fight off some of these armies. Yes. At one point the Paraguayan government calls him in and Rickard says, they all come around to me, the president, the cabinet and everyone, and they told me, if I'd go out and fight the Bolivians, they'd give me all the soldiers I wanted and more. <laughs> they'd give me an army. He said, well, I didn't want to act without instruction, so I wired to my people back in uh, the Farquhar uh, syndicate and says, would you like me to take this army and go to war for this? Mr. Farquhar telegrams back from Paris. He didn't want a war. He's got too many big interests. And so Ricard says, and so I missed my chance to lead an army. Rickard said that he had lost the chance to promote the biggest fight of his career, a wall <laughs> between Bolivia and Paraguay. Well, he could have sold it. We'd have to build a very big arena for that one. Uh, while in Paraguay, former US President Teddy Roosevelt mm. comes to visit and do a, one of his expeditions. He was What's famous doing for doing these oh, okay. expeditions. He was a very manly man, Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. and he decides he wants to go into the interior of South America and shoot sure. animals and do all that sort of yeah. stuff. Rickard goes with him for a bit and the two get along like a house on fire to the point where they stay friends till Roosevelt's death and one of the last people to be called to Roosevelt's yeah, side right. is Rickard. Now, Rickard finally returns the war with Paraguay and Bolivia and everything. He finally decides this is all too much. He still owns all the land. And yes. In fact, they find out he still owned the land 20 years after Rickard's death. <laughs> but he basically leaves it. Yes. He basically lets the guys he's brought down from America, you can run run the, it, run you, it, if you can going. keep it. Yep. And so a lot of Argentinian, Bolivian, Paraguay, the big beef industry that they have there comes out of this. Yeah, right. So he leaves a mark. He lost $1 million, though, on the enterprise. So in 1916, he comes back to the United States after Jack Johnson has actually lost he fights in Havana against a guy called Jess Willard, who's a huge giant of a man, a white man, white man. who is the great white hope that they'd all been hoping for, yes. who beat Jack Johnson and wins the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Rickard returns and people start saying, will you help Willard find his next fight? <laughs> and so Willard says, okay, I'll see what I can do. He offers Willard an individual purse of $100,000 to defend his title, like a guaranteed 100000 yeah. not just if for winning. Willard couldn't resist this at all. And he starts to look around for someone to take on Willard. Yeah. And the boxer he identifies is someone who most people don't know, but his name is Jack Dempsey. No, no, no. Who Jack goes Dempsey? on to become yeah, one of the most famous absolutely. boxers of all time. Now, Jack Dempsey has a manager called Jack Kearns, who's considered an absolute snake. <laughs> he was, by his own admission, one of the world's best conmen. That's what he by says. By his own admission. By his own admission. Jess Willard, who is the world champion, once called him a gangster. The Australian boxing historian Arnold Thomas noted that someone said of Kearns, when you first meet Jack, you are inclined to dislike him, but when you know him a while, you really get to hate him. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, <laughs> Kearns has met Dempsey. Dempsey is a guy who's grown up, incredibly tough man, yep. big man, fought all over the world but in tiny little back rooms and stuff. Like they call him a hobo boxer because he's literally fighting on the sure. streets. Kearns meets Dempsey because one night he's in the saloon in the summer of 1917, Kearns gets in a bar fight with a much larger man and it's in near the iron foundries of Oklahoma, California. Not a good place because no. Kearns is a bit of a fop, right, in a suit and he's got a diamond pin tie. Yeah, he's way out of his depth over there. Three other men come to fight him with the other guy. So suddenly he's lined up against four huge men who work yes. in the foundries and thinks, I'm going to die here. Jack Dempsey happened to come in for a drink after working a shift, jumps into the fray to help him because he believes that picking on a little guy is not good. Yeah, good on him. Dempsey destroys the four men. It says you can hear the sound of tables and chairs breaking, mirrors shattering and bottles breaking as Dempsey just cleans it up. <laughs> Dempsey quickly leaves before the cops come, but Kern spends the next month trying to track, track him, him down, down, going yeah. this guy would be a fantastic boxer which it turns out he, he's become one of the greatest sure. boxers of all time. Kearns travels to New York to meet Tex Rickard because he knows he's got the Willard match and says, I want Dempsey. Rickard responds by saying, Willard would kill Dempsey if they got in the ring, so I'm not going to do it. The public weren't uninterested either. Now what Kearns doesn't know is Rickard wants Dempsey. He just doesn't yeah. want to let Kearns know this. <laughs> and these two are two of the greatest negotiators of all that. Yeah. Their negotiation goes next level. Kearns keeps pressuring him. Ricard is just waiting till the deal's right. Tex begins leaking stories of the potential fight and makes out that Willard doesn't want it. Yeah. So he's leaking to the paper yeah, yeah. all these things, story after story, also where it's going to be held. Sure. So suddenly the public start going, well, why won't they fight? Why won't they fight? And gotcha. it suddenly is like the We're huge away. thing. Suddenly Tex announced that it will be fought. It will be fought in Toledo, Ohio. And it's called the fight of the decade. Mm -hmm. The reason it's in Toledo is this is like close to Detroit, Chicago, and New York. And it's also known for its gambling and gangster hideaways. <laughs> so it's it a great helps. place. Also, it's got a friendly government that aren't going to tax them too much, right? That was a factor. So Rickard calls a press conference and says, Gentlemen, Jess Willard has agreed to defend his title against young Jack Dempsey. Mr. Willard will receive a guarantee of $100,000. Mr. Kearns and Mr. Dempsey are so grateful for the opportunity that they ask for no guarantee and will fight for nothing if necessary. However, I shall be glad to take care of them after the gate is checked. Then Rickard said he would, of course, provide Dempsey with ten or 15000 for training expenses. So Willard's getting all the money. Dempsey's not getting much. So Willard got the He gets $100,000 no matter what. Dempsey didn't. At the press conference, he, after he says this, Doc Kearns, who's there with Dempsey, he interrupts and says, just a minute, Rickard, in front of the whole press. First I show you how to get Willard, makes out that he helped him get Willard, and now you're not going to pay us off properly? He says, well, we're not going to fight if this is the way. This is in front of the press, right? <laughs> Rickard says, you're just trying to worm out of paying us. And Rickard is furious. He says, we're gambling $100,000 to get you a shot at the title and we're gambling for millions here. And Ken says, fine, me and Mr. Dempsey will take 50000 guarantee. <laughs> so Rickard suddenly having to negotiate yeah. around the press. Kern says, it should be plainer than the nose on your faces that this boy deserves at least half as much as Willard. The reporters watch as they argue back and forward the 50,000 demand. Rickard says 25,000 then. Kern says 30,000 and the press say, just split it between 30 and 25 and that's what they do. So Dempsey right. gets a guarantee of 27. So Rickard realises that this Kearns is... Yeah, he's trouble. So the fight's set up. 
Wyatt Earp shows up as one of the keepers of the peace. Not the referee? Well, he shows up. He stands at the entrance of the stadium and disarms men and women <laughs> from their knives and guns, which there were a lot. And a few times people don't hand them over and there's a scuffle. Willard, before the match, asks for legal immunity should he happen to kill Dempsey. So <laughs> sure he was of winning, right? The fight starts and Dempsey destroys Willard. Willard gets knocked down time and time again. Dempsey, as he knocks him down, stands above him. And this is before you had to go to a neutral corner yeah. after a knockdown. And because Dempsey's habit of standing right over as they get up, they bring in the rule that you have to now go to a neutral yeah, corner. So this is where this comes from. Yeah. Because every time Willard would stand up, Dempsey would belt him from behind. <laughs> <laughs> so Dempsey knocks him out in the third round. It is Absolutely brutal. Willard couldn't lift his head. He'd lost four teeth. His cheekbone was broken. And they think because they threw in the towel, he'd been saved from what would have been a fatal beating. And Dempsey is suddenly now a star. He's the icon of America. He's a good-looking guy. Hollywood gets interested. He attracts famous friends and admirers. One of the biggest admirers is a guy that toes up at his training one day for another fight he's doing, a guy by the name of Al Capone. Okay. And Al Capone, the crime overlord, shows up and he says to Dempsey, I'll give you any amount of money to come to my private club for a boxing exhibition. Dempsey's like going, oh, uh-oh, what do I do here? He contacts Tex Rickard rather than his manager, thinking I think Rickard will know better what to yeah. do. Rickard said, Jack, these gangster fellas are nice guys, most of them. You're going to have to meet more and more of them in this business. Be nice to them, polite. But don't never have no business with them. When they own you, they don't let you go. And tell that noisy manager of yours the same thing. Yeah. Dempsey refuses Capone's offer but sends an autographed photo of himself to Capone yeah. as compensation. And Capone stays a loyal fan of Dempsey's for the rest of his life. Well played. Dempsey and Rico go on to make each other rich. It's worked out that um, over the next seven fights, Rickard pays Dempsey a total, and this is the money at the time, $2.5 million dollars which works out to about $49 million sure. in today's thing. By 1920, New York has started to loosen its laws on letting boxing happen. That's important for a place called Madison Square Garden. But it's suddenly been announced that Madison Square Garden is going to close. Mm-hmm. So Tex Rickard, he thinks is incredibly important that people are annoyed that this is going to close. So it's owned by uh, the New York Life Insurance Company. And they're saying we're going to tear it down and this becomes a huge issue. So in walks Tex and says, I will lease the building. It's never made a profit yep. at this point. Rents it for $300,000 a year for 10 years. Backs it with a sublease with a partner in his venture, John Ringling, who's the circus guy. Yeah, Ringling Brothers. So is Madison Square Garden, what is it though? Is it- Madison Square Garden has had four iterations. So we all this know is the, what it is today. This is the second Madison yeah. Square Garden. Yeah. The first one was the one that our pedestrian friend walked at. <laughs> right. That closed. This second one opens. The one that they have now is the fourth. Fourth. Yeah. We'll get to the third and the second. Okay. So he takes over and for the first time ever, he makes it a profitable business, Madison mm-hmm. Square Garden. He puts a full slate of boxing matches. He remodels it, adds extra seating. In summer, he turns the stadium into the largest indoor swimming pool. And this makes a fortune, right? There it is. Within five months, it's bought in over a million dollars. This is a place that's never made any money. In 1921, for the first time, a giant swimming pool is built. This is huge. It's 250 feet long, 110 feet wide, 
It's two-thirds the size of an American football field. Mm. The water tank held 1.5 million gallons of water. The end of the pool had a depth of three feet and sloped to the centre for a depth of 15 feet. Mm. Had a waterfall and it gets written up as this huge thing and it makes enormous money. He then decides to set up the next Dempsey fight, which is against a guy called George Carpenter. He is a French war hero from World War One. Yep. Dempsey avoided the war and a bit like Vietnam, oh, so draft dodges. He portrays yeah, Dempsey yeah. as the bad guy yeah. and the French war ace as the hero. His co-promoter is a guy called George Bernard Shaw who goes on to become a very famous what? writer. They want to stage it in New York, but the New York are proving too difficult. So he actually sets up in New Jersey a new outdoor arena that expands to hold 90,000 people. The people who attend this fight include John D. Rockefeller, Henry Ford, Vincent Astor, Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Familiar names there. Yeah, so Al Jolson. (laughs) (laughs) Not in blackface, I hope. He's been cancelled many times. Oh, yeah. He's and, the first cancellor. Oh, exactly. So this is a huge fight. Rickard joins Dempsey before the fight in the dressing room and said, you've never seen anything like it. He says, this is huge, 9,000 people, massive thing. He said, now don't mess it up. And Dempsey said, what do you mean don't mess it up? And he said, you know, this is just the beginning. Don't mess it up. Don't kill him. <laughs> We've got many more fights to come. Don't fight him. He said, give the people out there a good run for their money, but be careful. Don't kill him. Don't kill everything. Dempsey wins the match in the fourth round really easily. But this drew a record crowd of 90,000 and it's the first ever boxing fight to produce a million-dollar gate. Rickard makes half a million dollars profit on it. Now then, in February 16, some real twists occur. A grand jury suddenly returns two indictments against Tex Rickard, charging him with assaulting two young girls, a 12 and a 15-year-old. This is not going to go the way you think. The oldest girl said that Rickard had had sexual relations with her and it lasted months and that he had met her at the swimming pool at Madison Square Garden. It seems to everyone that Rickard is done and dusted and this is career yes. ending, obviously. Um, he suddenly has to step down from the Madison Square Garden. His boxing license yep. promotion is revoked and he is persona non grata everywhere. What starts to happen during the trial, though, is the story starts to become clearer that Rickard was basically a victim, that this had been set up by the mob. Right. Because they wanted to take him down because he was becoming too powerful, controlling boxing and wouldn't let them in. And they wanted to take over his interests. And they wanted to get him out of the way. His lawyer manages to prove that all the dates where he's meant to have been doing this stuff, he's either got alibis or he's in other states. Yep. And so it becomes quite easy Thank to God. disprove it. On top of that, Rickard reveals, and he waits his moment to do this. He, yes. he doesn't panic and rush out and do it in the open. He lets his reputation take a beating, yeah. says, I've got, we'll have more to say later, and waits till the trial's in full force. Yes. He's like, they said most men would panic and just say all sorts yeah. of things. He really waits till he's got all the evidence. And some men approach him and say, we'll drop all of this if you just pay us off, which he doesn't. So Rickard is found not guilty on March 29, 1922, and it all is over. Right. He then scages a Jack Dempsey-Gene Tunney fight, which if boxing fans, that's huge. That's the first $2 million gate. Yep. He then finds out Rickard and Ringling, they're four years into their 10-year lease for Madison Square Garden, 
And New York Life Insurance Company announced that they are going to knock down Madison Square Garden and boot them out right. and build a apartment and building a, a business skyscraper there for them. The public is furious. So Tex Rickard and John Ringling, they decide to buy new property and form a syndicate called the New Madison Square Garden Corporation and set up a new Madison Square Garden. This is the third Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. It's built in 925 and it's the Madison Square Garden that's there till 1968 and has been replaced by the new Madison Square Garden. On the same site? No, they move each time. He starts building this. In 1924, his wife passes away from a bad heart which is a bit of a common theme with him, but he's been with her for a very long time. Finally, Madison Square Garden, though, is built and it's open for business and it's huge. This is like 1925. It's got five box offices, seven entrances, enough seat for 17,000 people. It's bigger than the previous one. It could expand, hold 24,000 for boxing matches. Mm. It's built for boxing. It's much cleaner. Everything you can see is steel, stone or concrete, which is new. It's got a ventilation system to get rid of all the smoking because everyone smokes. <laughs> um, they could suck out the stale air, the new machines and recirculate the air with six complete changes of air per hour. For the first time ever, it had temperature che- air conditioning yeah. and stuff within it. It also had stuff that would let it be able to be used for winter. So it had pipes underneath that could freeze water so ice hockey could be played. Yeah, great. So he introduces that. And as a curtain raiser for the new Madison Square Garden, and this is holds all the great fights through the 60s. Sure. He sets up an ice hockey match between the New York Americans, which is a team he builds just for this occasion, Ooh. and the Montreal Canadiens. And it's so successful and sells out that he actually says, well, I would like a team in the National Hockey League. And he sets it up, becomes known as New York's Texas because of his text, yeah. Texas Rangers. And that today is the New York Rangers in the, the New York NHL. Rangers. He there sets that up. They win the Stanley Cup in the second season. It's huge by this point. It's bringing in millions of dollars. He builds a radio station there that runs all the broadcasts, all the stuff, becomes the center of anything. He marries a woman that he meets at Madison Square Garden one night. Her name's Maxine Hodges. She's 33 years. He's a junior. She's wife number four. Wife number four. Uh, yeah, wife number four. She's 23 when he meets her. They marry and they have a daughter and they're incredibly happy. Rickard then decides that I'm going to build a Madison Square Garden in every city in America. He builds the first one, which is in Boston, and it's known as Boston Garden and becomes the home of the Boston Celtics yeah, famously. It's now been on it. So he's behind that too. He believes that Florida is the big next one, so he starts setting up in Florida. But on December 26, 928, Rickard leaves New York for Miami Beach, Florida, and he's working out arrangements for a fight that's about to happen, and he's opening up the Miami Beach Kennel Club, which is a greyhound racing club. (laughs) He's all over the (laughs) shop. And he's rich, famous, the most respected promoter of sport. He's got so much money coming in. He's flying high. Flying high. But on January 26, 929, in the lead-up to that, he starts feeling sore stomach and it's worked out that he's got his burst appendix. And so he goes in for surgery and from complications of that, he's in real trouble. Wyatt Earp has also become sick at this time and he gets out of bed and telegrams his sick friend in Florida and says, I hope you're going all right. And this exertion causes him to relapse and he dies one week after. Ricard passes away from the complications from the surgery. He dies 10 months before Black Friday, the crash, 
So we never know what yeah. would have happened if he had lasted. When he dies, his body is interned in state at Madison Square Garden and thousands of people come by to see the casket. It's like, you know, yeah. in the communist countries where <laughs> Lenin or something, he's lying in state there for ages. Rickards Madison Square Garden closes in 1968 and it's replaced by the new one that's today. But boxing as a grand spectacle dies with Rickard and does not get brought back to life on the scale anywhere near what he has brought to it yep. until a young boxer by the name of Muhammad Ali emerges it's decades later. There we go. And that is the end of Tex Rickard. So he was wildly popular with people. He was a, a personality in his own right. Massive, people straight were... shooter. He was more famous than half of the people. He's behind Jack Dempsey. He's behind the Madison Square Garden. He created the New York Rangers. And he basically set up sport as yeah. an entertainment and boxing. He made boxing what it was. Did he give up the gambling? Because it sounds like he had sustained success towards the He gambled the all the way through. Really? But he would gamble also with like his businesses, right? Like the money he raised to take on Madison Square Garden. No one had ever made money on Madison Square Garden. There'd yeah. been two before and they'd all lost money the whole way through. He's the first one that took it. He knew how to do at all. He was the only man that was trusted to do it all. Yeah. And his impact on sport is bigger than like you can imagine because all the big event sports that you have now, <laughs> he set up the whole business model for the entire Incredible. thing. Well, to think that's what you get when you put an 11-year-old boy on the back <laughs> of a horse and send him on a cattle drive across America. Who knows where that's going to end up. You said it was an odyssey. You said it was an adventure and it's a tick in both boxes. Great story. Thank you, Titus. As you know, I've been shamelessly plugging our membership program, Bazaar Plus, and one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Who's your favourite cult leader? I liked uh, Shoko Asahara. He was your favourite. So Shoko Asahara, he was from the Orm sect. Yeah. And in Japan, they used to put sarin gas in, oh, in, the, in, subway. the, in the subways. Yeah. But my favourite detail was he used to make his followers drink his dirty bathwater. Oh. That's a test of loyalty. That's what you insisted if I wanted you on this podcast. That's right. <laughs> and if you've seen my dirty bathwater, oh. it's, it's like the bubbling hot springs of Rotorua. It's 98% proof. Grab a ladle, everyone. It's 98% knock alcohol. Your, knock, <laughs> your, <laughs> knock yourself out. Put a little garnish in there. Oh, I went blind drinking it. God. That's the type of thing you can do. As a cult leader, you can go. You think we could do. Dirty, dirty bathwater. We could do a cult bazaar, basically. Well, oh, cult man. by nature is bizarre. That's like a, a tautology. Yeah, it is. Bizarre, bizarre. Yeah. Right. Uh, like a very straight-laced, boring cult. <laughs> well, like we just go to work. <laughs> That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bizarre Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bizarreplus.com. <laughs>